are listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for June 2013. Today's episode is titled, Four Basic Business Skills. Death is a stark reality that demands a response. Not responding, we work without much understanding of how our work connects to the bigger reality than just the here and now. In other words, we simply work to make a living, to survive until we die. We see little, if any, connection between our work and the ultimate realities of the universe. Hopefully this is not satisfying to you. So how do we work beyond the tactical reality of making money? The four basic business skills are recognizing and embracing the meta-narrative, using C4 to find each individual's role, strategically aligning the organization to fulfill its role in the meta-narrative, and tactically aligning each individual to fulfill his or her role in the organization. Practicing these basic skills will help bring organizations and individuals into alignment with the will and ways of God. The fruit of this alignment will be provision, profit, because God always funds His will done His ways. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Four Basic Business Skills. May I suggest that these are basically four basic skills? You know, if we live in a holistic universe... Whatever applies in one jurisdiction applies in all jurisdictions. You thought about that? Those of you who have been through the BLS, which I assume most of you have, remember his teaching on the seamless garment? What was that all about? The principles apply in all jurisdictions. It's a seamless garment. There's not a set of principles for business and a set of principles for family and a set of principles for church. They apply in all jurisdictions. So... In some ways, this title is a little misleading. We're going to focus on business, but the principles here apply to anybody and whatever they may be doing. Well, let's just take a moment here and pray. Father, we do thank you for what you're saying to us through this conference. We're extremely touched, extremely touched by the the passion and the commitment, the sacrifice, the willingness to die for your name. Father, give us all that grace. And, Father, we want to commit ourselves to you tonight as we talk about these four basic skills. Father, give us wisdom and insight. Give us understanding. And give us a commitment to live it out consistently and faithfully in every area of life. So, Father, we commit this time to you. We commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start out talking first about God's will and God's way. Because this is really what drives these four principles. I want to define for you what I'm saying here, and we're going to use Matthew 6.33 as a text to do that. All of you are familiar with this text, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you as well. Now, you remember the context. Jesus is speaking. It's the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking about basic needs, food, clothing, shelter, the things that most of us fret about and worry about. And at the conclusion of this conversation, he speaks this verse here. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word kingdom refers to where the king rules, doesn't it? That a good way to look at it? So the kingdom is where the rule of the king is in, in force. So we're talking about wherever the king has authority, wherever he is in control, His will is done. So this is about the will of God. And then righteousness. What's righteousness? Well, righteousness is a divine attribute. 
It speaks of the character and nature of God. He is righteous. He is holy. In fact, all of his ways are righteous. That's one of the Psalms. So righteousness is about the attributes of the way he is and the way he functions. So I've characterized that as his ways. And, of course, we're told to imitate Christ. Christ lived according to the will and the ways of God. And so that's what we have here is an admonition, an imperative from Christ to us to seek first his will and his ways. That is God's will and God's ways. And when you do that, God says, I'll take care of everything else. There's a lady that's emailing me right now, and she is very concerned that the Christian church does not understand money properly. And she's probably right. But what she doesn't yet understand is she doesn't quite get the deal about money. Because even though she realizes that something's off, she doesn't quite know what's off. And she doesn't realize that the game is not about accumulating wealth. You know, if the game's about accumulating wealth, we're all going about it the wrong way. If the game's about accumulating wealth, that would mean that at the end, wealth would mean something. But Proverbs says this, wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, which is the judgment day. That's the end point. At that point, it does not matter how much money you've earned, how much money that you've accumulated. Some of you know Dick Clark passed, and they were talking about his wealth, you know, in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So as I read that, I'm saying, well, what's it mean now? Can he use that in any way to benefit him now as he stands before the Lord? You see, when you get God's view of money, things will change. Because now you're going to view money as a tool to do the will of God. Just like time is a tool to do the will of God. Just like your talents are tools to do the will of God. And just like everything in life becomes a tool to do the will of God. Now, please don't hear me minimize relationships. I'm not minimizing them at all. But in any situation, whether it's a marriage, a family, a business, a church, a community, the only relevant question is, what is the will of God? There's really no other relevant question. You've got to think about that. Now, maybe you ought to reinforce this just a little bit. Do you think maybe Scripture might give us some reinforcing word on this? And maybe we might find it by reading some of Paul's epistles and see what he focused his attention on. Would you say that's a fair way to approach it? Yeah? Let's see what he focused on. What was important to him? What did he really consider valuable? So I'm just going to go back to our trusty book of Colossians. And in this book, in the first chapter, Paul talks about his prayer. He's praying for his spiritual grandchildren because he has seen life in them. He sees the virtues of love, faith, and hope. Three distinctive marks of a true believer. You'll see love, faith, and hope. And so he's excited because he sees it in these people. And so now he's going to pray for them. And he wants to tell them, this is the way I'm praying for you. Because of the fact that I see faith, hope, and love in you. And since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Now Paul is talking about himself and his spiritual sons. You know, he's very multi-generational. And now he's going to tell them how he and his sons are praying for these spiritual grandsons. And by the way, I'm using grandsons generically. It's male and female. We continually ask God 
to fill you with what? The knowledge of his will. You see, that's the seminal prayer. We need the knowledge of his will. Here's the, the means by which we gain that. Through all wisdom and understanding. And that word understanding is the word gnosko, which also means knowledge. So you could render that through wisdom and knowledge that the Spirit gives. You see, human potency is not a biblical idea. We are empowered by the Spirit. So that, now you see, this is sound theology to get it that we have a God who has a will that we can discern and he wants us to discern that will and then live that out so that, and here's then the practical application, you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him. Is that worth living? You want that? You want to live a life worthy of the Lord and please him? Then you've got to be filled with the knowledge of his will through all understanding and wisdom, through knowledge and wisdom. So this is the essence here of the will and ways of God. We have got to really get it and get very clear that what Christianity is about is about us lining up with God, his will, and his ways. Now, based on this, we want to talk about four key skills that you need to live in a way that would please and honor the Lord. First, we're going to talk about the meta-narrative, which is another expression of the will of God. Then we're going to talk about C4, which is an expression of the ways of God. We're going to talk about strategic alignment, which is about the will of God, and tactical alignment, which is about the ways of God. So those are the four ideas we're going to talk about. And so I'm just going to walk you through some understanding, some explanation of these things. Hopefully you'll take notes and have questions, and we'll have a fun interchange with that. First, the meta narrative. Now, who has heard of the term meta narrative? Anybody? Most of you heard the term. Okay. So, what does it mean? What's the term meta narrative mean? Not all of you at once. Huh? Overarching story. Meta means large or big. The great meta narrative, the great story. You've heard the term that history is his story. You heard that? History is his story. Okay, well, that's a reference to the meta narrative. So the meta narrative is the overarching story of God and what he's doing. And so as you begin to recognize that God has a plan and God has a purpose, then you, the question is, how do we fit in? Now, most of us really struggle seeing how we fit in. That's kind of a, a foreign concept to us. That's not, basically, we go to work on Monday morning, we work hard all week, we make a bunch of money, and the weekend we go to church and we tithe. That's kind of the way we approach it. And we don't see any connection to the meta narrative. It just it's beyond us. But can you allow yourself to be stretched, to be challenged, to think, wait a minute, maybe I have a role to play. Maybe the will of God is that my work activity connects to what he's doing. In some way, it counts in his kingdom. How would that make you feel to know that your work counted in the kingdom? That make you feel good? That give you some energy? That give you some focus? Maybe it'd help you press through those hard times. Maybe help you seek the Lord more diligently, more faithfully. It's not just about money. It's really about finding your place in the meta narrative and doing it. And one of the things we have to do is we think about this is realize how God's universe works. God's meta narrative has mechanisms in place. And we see these in Genesis 1. 
for example, the whole idea about seasons and design. So we've got to correctly discern the themes and seasons that you and your businesses are in in terms of how to apply your energy tasks and decisions. You see, if every decision really is ultimately a question of what is the will of God, then think about what that means. How many of you have looked for a job recently? How many? Several of you are looking for a job? Okay. Now, what's the relevant question? What is the will of God? That's the question. It isn't, you know, where I can make the most money. It isn't, you know, what I think I might like. Now, please understand that those things may play into it, but that's not the big question. You know, there's a big question and there's a lot of little questions. The big question is, what is it that God wants me to do? What is his will? What does he want this organization to do? So notice here a couple of texts that you're already familiar with. Ephesians 1.11, again, reinforces the meta-narrative. In him, that is in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Now, you see that word, everything there? Now, what's excluded from everything? Now, I don't know what to exclude from everything. I don't know what scripture to go to to tell me what's excluded. It looks like it means everything. So if everything, it means everything in my life, everything that I touch, everything that's going on. It doesn't matter where it is, when it is, how it is. It's all coming under his plan and his purpose. And furthermore, if you have something that's trying to go against the plan and purpose of God, it's not going to work. Look at Proverbs. There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. What are we doing here? We have a God who is in control of his universe. As Peter said so eloquently, he is sovereign. He is sovereign. Now, let's just talk about sovereignty a second because this is a very misunderstood reality. And it's one that people look at that and they look at human responsibility and they say, well, wait a minute. Is he sovereign or are we responsible? Which one is it? And it's hard for us to deal with that. We can't get our arms around that. Because it, it looks like they're contradictory messages. But here's the reality. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are truths that in Scripture are side by side with no contradiction. If we're going to be biblical, we've got to think like Scripture expresses, which is an expression of how God thinks. And so I just want to read you a simple text that illustrates this. It's a text that you know well. It's found in Acts chapter 2. There are many texts, by the way. This is just one that's easy to, and simple, and you all are familiar with it. And this is Peter explaining what's happening at Pentecost. You know, that deserves some explanation. So Peter's explaining it to all these Jewish people that have gathered for this celebration. These people are from all over the known world. They're part of the dispersion, and they've come back to Jerusalem for this celebration. And this phenomena has happened where all these people are speaking in tongues and speaking in languages that these people hear back where they live. And they all live in all these different places. And so they said, how do these people know our language from Asia or Asia Minor or Phrygia or Pamphylia or wherever? How do they know that? Well, then Peter's launching in to an explanation of the Holy Spirit, which is the empowering agent now that we enjoy. The power we have now to truly live out the Christian life. Now, in verse 23 of Acts chapter 2, he says this, this man, referring to Christ, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. You see, 
Christ died according to the will of God. At the same time, he goes on to say, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Wait a minute. We have God's plan being done, and yet these men are being held responsible. You did it. You're responsible. And very soon you're going to see, if you read on the text, they're going to get touched in the heart, pricked in the heart. And they're going to say, what shall we do? And Peter's going to give them the right response. You need transformation. You need your worldview changed. And the word he uses is repent. Repent means to change your thinking. Your thinking is wrong. And so this is a great example of how sovereignty and responsibility are side by side. They're both true. There is no apparent contradiction from the standpoint of Scripture. So as we're thinking about God's will, we're thinking also about man's responsibility to line up with God's will. The second aspect here, the ways of God, Psalm 8 verse 6 says this, You made him, that is man, ruler over the works of your hands, and you have put everything under his feet. You see, it is God's way that he rule through us. We are his agents. Now, those of you who have been through the school, you've heard the term mediating grace. Remember that term, mediating grace? Does anybody remember it? Yes. Okay. All right, what does mediating grace mean? Anybody, what's mediating grace mean? Or something else. It's not just people. It can be something else. It's mediating grace that you're breathing oxygen and keeping you alive. The oxygen is a tool of mediating grace. Food is what he uses to keep you alive. You ever know somebody that just just want to be, it's just me and Jesus? You ever know anybody like that? Okay. You ever ask them if they eat? Yeah, ask them. Hey, do you eat? Well, it's more in you and Jesus then, isn't it? Okay. Because there's this food here. Of course, they don't understand mediating grace because it would be real simple to respond to that. Well, that's how he's choosing to feed me. But see, they've got a wrong view of God. They've got bad theology going on. And so you need to challenge them. We need to learn how God works. He works through mediating grace. And so the reality here is that we are the tools that God has put here on this planet to rule the planet. We are part of his meta narrative. And whatever it is you do, it doesn't matter what you do, you are an agent of mediating grace. Doesn't that make work more significant? To know when I go to work, I am God's instrument to mediate his grace. Now, please understand what grace is. Now, we think grace is just making my life easy and pleasant and comfortable. Well, it's wonderful when that happens, but that's not grace. You know, grace is the empowering presence of Christ in you to do the will of God. That's what grace is. Peter Waldron was given a lot of grace. Now, I'm not talking about the fact he was pardoned, he got out. I'm talking about he had grace for all that he endured. You see, God gives you grace to endure whatever it is he's called you to do. And that's his will. And one of the challenges we have in Christianity today is we don't get it that God, God has a will that we may suffer. Is that okay that he might call you to suffer? Nope. I see some of you saying, nope, I don't want to suffer. I understand. Who wants to suffer? Well, Paul says it's been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to also suffer for his sake. That's Philippians chapter 1, toward the end of the chapter. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says this, that just as Christ Jesus suffered unjustly, you are called to suffer 
unjustly. And the context of that is submitting to authority. You see, authority is a tool of mediating grace. Whatever authority God has put into your life, it's divinely placed. It's divinely structured and put into your life so that God's will can be done. Yes, and I know you, many of you have dysfunctional situations. You may have dysfunctional marriages. You may have dysfunctional pastors and church leaders. You may have dysfunctional bosses, dysfunctional governments, dysfunctional educators. Yeah, they're all there, but they're sovereignly placed. And God is doing something in this meta-narrative. And if we don't give him the grace to do it the way he wants to do it, and we keep demanding he does it our way according to our will and our ways, then we are not going to be lined up with him. Jesus asked, Lord, if it's possible, may, I, may this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what does he say? Not my will, but thy will be done. The only relevant question ultimately is what is the will of God. That's where we have to get to. Now, see, that's a business skill. That's a life skill. That's a parenting skill. That's a marriage skill. That's a church skill. That's a skill in every area of life. So we've got to learn to get lined up with the will and ways of God. Now, as we learn how God works, his ways, we learn he has seasons, the seasonality. And that's pretty simple to see. We have four seasons. At least most places have four seasons. I was in Singapore recently, and they said, yeah, we have four seasons. We have hot, hotter, hotter, and hotter. Okay, well, that's okay, four seasons. But in, in Texas, we generally have four seasons. This year, we didn't have a winter. But normally, we have four seasons. And different things happen in those seasons, you know, in terms of what you do. You know, do you plant in the winter? No, you don't. You don't plant in the winter. You plant in the spring. And when do you harvest? Okay, in the fall. So summer, what are you doing in the summer? You're protecting the crop, aren't you? Fertilizing, watering, pulling weeds, taking care of the pests and all those kinds of things. And what do you do in the winter? You prepare for spring. The strategic planting time, it's the sharpening of the saws and the blades and getting things ready to go. So these seasons are there for, for a purpose. Now you think about whatever business activity you do. And by the way, everyone works. You may work in the home. If you're a mom at home raising kids, you work. Okay? You may be employed by a church. You work. You're employed by a company. You work. You're employed by a nonprofit. You work. It doesn't matter. We all work. And we get up and work. Now some of you may be wealthy enough that you actually pay not to work. Well, you work. Whatever it is that you do every day, that's your work. Now, hopefully you've discerned what you're supposed to be doing. You're just not presumptuously deciding that you've really discerned the will of God. And so we've got to begin to recognize as we work the seasons. Now, suppose that in your work activity, every day was just very, very busy with the busiest part of your year all day long, every day. Suppose that was your, your cycle. How would that feel to you? Man, I need a break. You know, it's overwhelming. You know, I, I grew up in the construction business. And there were times when things were just absolutely chaotic. I mean, we would get up early and we'd work. As long as there was light, we worked. And we worked six and sometimes seven days a week. And we couldn't wait till we finished. Finished the project and we could take a break. And we couldn't keep that up year-round. We had to have... A winter where it's snow, everybody's off today. Thank you, Jesus. Ah, <laughs> oh, what a gift. We need breaks. Well, that's, God has built these in. 
learn how to use these breaks, these downtimes, very strategically. One of the hard things I had to learn in business was that downtimes are okay. Typically, when downtimes came, I got panicky. Oh, man, we're running out of work. Oh, this isn't gonna, oh, this is not good. We're losing money. We got to go make something happen. So push, 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 force, force, force. I didn't appreciate God's seasonalities. And with the seasonality, the Sabbath patterns. You know, I didn't appreciate the need for rest. Now, as I've come to understand more about this, I realize this is critical. This is something God's built into his universe. It's absolutely essential. And the social concerns, this is where you're thinking beyond yourself. You're thinking beyond what you want, what you think is good for you. Now, interesting, if you're reading uh, any of the literature out there, people are beginning to say, secular people are beginning to say things like, you know, we need to have a higher purpose than money for business. Very nice. It's a good thought. It's a good idea. They're not pointing you, though, to the will and ways of God. They're pointing you to social causes. You need to find something that, that you can support. You know, maybe you can be an activist for the, the green movement. Or maybe you want to, you know, support a local hospital or an orphan's home or something. Do something that's beyond you. It's for, your, for the higher good. But never in all the wall that I've read, I've not seen anybody say, wait a minute. The real ultimate highest good is doing the will and ways of God. Now, you guys know that, so guess what? You're accountable. That's one of the challenges about coming to an event like this is you gain understanding, and now you're accountable to that understanding. Okay, so we've got to live in the meta-narrative. We've got to get in sync with how God works, not only strategically but tactically. So the next thing is we've got to understand more about God's ways. We must know the gifts and skill God has given to us and to those whom we work and understand what kind of training and complementary skills are required to function around us. And Dennis talks about spheres and limits. And what I want to do is just add another thought, and that is, what do you have C4 to do? C4, in my study, from my conviction, is the biblical principle to help you discern the will of God for your life, to help you find your specific role in the meta narrative. Would you like to know that? Several years ago, I was invited to speak at a, at a Christian university. So I went over to meet with the dean and dean of the business school, and we had lunch together, and I brought them my book, and we talked about what I do and how I do it, and so I started asking them about the school. And, I, of course, in the conversation over lunch, I'm stressing biblical worldview. Those of you that know me know you don't go very far into a conversation with me before you hear those terms, biblical worldview. Is that right? Okay, you hear it. Because to me, this is foundational stuff. We've got to find out where we are. If we're not agreeing on biblical worldview as the game, then we're going to have a real disconnect. So I'm talking to the dean about this. And so then the dean starts telling me about the business school. I said, well, well, tell me about it. And the dean says, well, we teach all the basic business courses here. I said, great. You know, do you teach it biblically? Oh, yeah, we use a biblical worldview. Oh, really? Well, tell me about it. I said, tell me about your curriculum. Well, we use all the standard business books. I said, the standard business books? Oh, yeah. I said, well, those are secular books. And the dean said, oh, but we have a prayer at the beginning of every class. I said, really? That sanctifies it? That makes it okay? And we had a real disconnect. And then a little later, I was talking to another faculty member who is chairman of their department. And so I was having a similar conversation, and we got in talking about destiny and purpose. And I said, now, you've got 5,000 students here, right? Yeah, we have about 5,000 students, and we're growing. We're, we're one of the most successful universities of our denomination around. I said, well, can you tell me 
What percent of your students have any sense of what God has called them to do? And the dean didn't take a minute to answer that question. I mean, instantly. The answer was practically none. I said, really? She knew that immediately. She didn't even pause. I said, that's interesting. I said, and, and what are you doing about it? And she said, well, nothing. I said, nothing? Nothing. I said, why aren't you doing something? I mean, you know this is a huge issue. Why aren't you doing something about it? And she said, well, our job here is to offer courses, issue degrees, and collect tuition. <laughs> I said, this is a biblical worldview of education? Oh, yeah, we, we practice a biblical worldview of education here. Now, do you see the problem here? The disconnect is enormous. It is huge. And when you are not about helping people find what they're called to do, you're not in the game. You're not in the game of what God's about. God is all about executing his meta-narrative. And each one of us has a part. And your children have a part. And the people you're connected to have a part. Once you come to Christ, there's nothing more important than finding out what you're supposed to be doing and doing it. And that's what you see in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's coming to Christ. For, here's the reason you're saved. You were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. There's an assignment that's part of the meta narrative. Plan in advance. That's the meta narrative. God created you to be his man or woman to do something in his plan. Now, you've got to seek out what that is. And one of the beautiful things about God is when you seek him, he's findable. He's discoverable. All right, so I want to just show you a text where we find the C4 principle, and it's used here to guide people into what God has called them to do. This is out of Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In those days, this is the early church. The church is in formation. Basically, we have a church in Jerusalem at this point, and they're still trying to figure out what's going on. This is all this whole thing about the Holy Spirit and a church is all new things. So they're living kind of a communal kind of lifestyle. That they're very close together. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, it wasn't the number of converts, disciples. The Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebrew Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily food distribution. Notice that in the Christian congregation, we will have complaining. I'm, no, I'm sure none of you experienced that. But I can tell you as a church leader for many, many years, I have been on the receiving end of many complaints. So I'm very unhappy people from time to time. So the 12 gathered, this is obviously the apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, if you're a dualist, how would you interpret that? Well, we have a higher calling. It's beyond us to wait tables. That would be beneath us. We have to stay committed to the Word of God. But if you're a holist, how do you see this? They're doing their assignment. Yeah, it isn't any more important than anything else. There's nothing here that tells you their assignment is more important than anything else. If you're reading that into it, it's your imagination. Your bad theology at work. You see, sound theology says that everybody counts in the kingdom. A simple example of that is you go read 1 Corinthians 12 where it talks about the body. And it talks about every part of the body is important. Some are more prominent, but all are important. Well, likewise here. The apostles were more prominent, but all are important. 
So this is not, don't read this dualistically, it's not saying that their ministry of the word is more important. It is just their assignment. So now he says, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn over this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word, because that was their assignment. Now notice here, we have the first few elements of C4 showing up. First of all, you have a choosing. That's called calling. When you're called, you're chosen for something. Then you see, known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Now, if somebody's full of the Holy Spirit, you think they got great character? Impeccable character, if they're truly filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's the character. And then wisdom, which is the skill to live well in God's universe. That's the skill to do the job. The knowledge, know what I need to do, how to do it, where to do it, when to do it, etc. So we have calling character capability right here. Then he goes on to say this. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who laid hands and prayed for them. Now this, we're talking about food distribution here. Who's in the food distribution business? Several of you are in that business, okay? What you have here is what we would normally call ordination, okay? People come up, okay, you have been called of God to a specific ministry. Now we're going to lay hands on you and commission you to go do that ministry. And so here what you have is C4, calling, character, capability, commissioning. That's how you discern what it is that God wants you to do. Find the thing that you have C4 to do. Now, how many of you have ever been commissioned to what you're doing? Maybe a third of you? Okay. Does that suggest something? Maybe you ought to give some thought to that. Have you talked to your church leaders about this? Maybe look at this text. Say, you know, when we see somebody that's called to do something, maybe we ought to think about commissioning them. And by the way, let me just make a comment about this word ministry. Okay. You know what this word ministry means? Anybody know what it means? Literally? means to serve. The word diakonos, we get deacon from it, okay? It means to serve. We've turned the ministry into a vocation, and all ministry means is serve. You see, these people were ministering and distributing food. My wife ministers as an educator. Peter ministers in helping people manage their money. Neil ministers in helping people facilitate purchase and sale of grain, that's ministry. It's service. That's what it is. So I encourage you, what I personally do is I try not to use the term. As much as possible, I try to avoid it. When somebody comes up and starts talking about me, about being in the ministry, I try to start talking differently because I know that we got a disconnect there. I, I do not agree with your definition. You're talking to me dualistically, and I'm not willing to go there. So I'm going to try to take it in a different way. I might challenge him. I said, what's ministry? Well, you know, God called me this. What well, called you to what? Well, I'm a missionary. Okay. Well, is that more important than somebody called to be a plumber? They kind of look at me like, what? <laughs> Nobody asked me a question like that. Well, maybe you need to be asked. Maybe you need to be challenged. You know, uh, any of y'all read Pagan Christianity? You read that book? Yeah, several of you have read it. I know some pastors have blacklisted it. I understand that. But it's a very interesting read. 
the writer, I think, has done a pretty good job of researching things. And there are a number of things in there that are worthy looking at, one of which is the problems among those that perceive of themselves being in the professional ministry. And the failure rates, the burnout rates, you know, basically the inefficiencies that are there. And one of the questions he raises is, how many of these people are truly called to do this? Versus how many are doing it because they think that's the only way they can be a serious Christian? Or that's the only way they can serve God? You see, that's, that's a foreign thought to us. You know, I'm just looking at my own experience in my own church and all the different pastors we've had. My goodness. And the problems we've had with them. And most of them needed a lot of discipleship that they were not getting. Because it was just assumed that you're a pastor, you're mature. Well, eh, wrong. That's not true at all. We've got to start thinking biblically about how to train everyone, including pastors. If you're truly called to be a pastor, you need to be discipled into that. If you're called to be in food distribution, you need to be discipled. If you're called into technology, you need to be discipled. Whatever it is you're called to do, you need to be discipled. Now, let me just point out one more thing, and then we need to move on. So the word of God spread. You see that little phrase? So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. You see, that comes immediately after they have ordained these people to food distribution. Does that not suggest if you get lined up with what you have C4 to do, there might be an expansion of the kingdom of God as a result of that? Are you interested in that? Would you like to be an agent of mediating grace in the kingdom of God? Well, this, this is a way to do it right here. Okay, let's go on to the third point. This is about strategic alignment. Dennis writes, we must cultivate the art of strategic living and train others to do likewise. We must use time and resources in strategic alignment with our identity as servants of Christ. Now, what I want to stress here is being strategic is understanding your true relationship with Christ, the most seminal relationship with Christ. If you're going to be strategic, strategic is about lining up. It's about seeing reality accurately. And it's about seeing where things are going to go and now lining up everything to get there. So one of the key ways for me to line up with what God wants me to do in my life is to recognize what I am. Now, what am I? Well, I'm a son of the Most High God. I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You know, I'm a friend of God. I'm a ruler. You know, I'm ordained to do what it is that God's called me to do. There's all kinds of ways you can describe yourself. But what is the seminal way that you see, for example, the Apostle Paul as he matured, what was the seminal way that he began to describe himself relative to Christ? I'm a servant. Really, he uses the word slave. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, see, if you're going to live strategically, you've got to get to that place where you see yourself as a slave. And a slave only has one agenda, and that is the will of the master according to the ways of the master. Now, let's just take a look at this text out of Luke 17, which illustrates this point. Now, this was a time when the disciples of Christ were not always wise, and they would sometimes ask questions, and sometimes they made demands. And this is the time they made a demand. They said, increase our faith. You know, that's kind of like a waving a red flag in front of a bull. You're asking for the attack. Well, here it comes. Jesus said, all right. If you have faith 
as small as a mustard seed. And Neil, how small is a mustard seed? Very small. I mean, you can see it, but not very well. It's a really teeny tiny seed. If you have faith just that small, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, who's done that? I haven't done it yet. I would love to be able to have faith at least as small as a mustard seed. But he then expands on it. He tells them a parable. Now, this is a parable that's going to probably offend you. Is it okay if Scripture offends you? Be offended here. Okay. All right, he says this. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing, looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper and get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? Now, which one's he going to say? He's going to say, hey, it doesn't matter that you're hot and sweaty and you're tired and all that. Prepare my meal. And when I get through eating and drinking, then you can eat and drink me. That's what he's going to say. That's what it is. He's using a metaphor that they would be familiar with. Because see, in the Roman days, Roman citizens did not work. The slaves did the work. So the Roman citizens, they just sat around and sipped Starbucks coffee or, you know, whatever they're doing. Eating bonbons or, you know, whatever. Ice cream. And the servants did all the work. Now, notice this. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Would he do that? Now, you and I would say, I need to be thanked. I need you to show some appreciation for me. Look what I have done for you. That's what we would say, isn't it? You're not telling the truth, I can tell. Yeah, that's what we would all say. Show some gratitude here. Okay? But look what the servant says. So you would also, when you have done everything you were told to do, you would say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. I'm not looking for thank yous. I'm not looking for the master to give me a bunch of accolades and tell me how great I am. I'm here just to serve the master. I'm not here to serve me. You see, accolades are about me. I'm not about me. I'm about the master. Now, who's there? Which one of us can take on that attitude? That's a big challenge, isn't it? That's hard. In fact, that's one of those things we'd like to say, uh, can we cut that out? Just clip it out of the Bible, get rid of it? You know, we'd like to do that. You know, there are people through church history have wanted to do that. Like Luther wanted to cut James out of the Bible. He didn't like James. He did, didn't fit with his theology well. Well, Luther, your theology needed to be corrected. And James was God's tool, his mediating grace, to correct that. You see, we've got to recognize God has always got truth in tension. And so this is the truth here. It's a truth that we don't like, but it's a truth that we've got to grab a hold of because this is what sets us free. You remember John 8, 31, 32? We know John 8, 32, don't we? You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And we quote that all the time, don't we? In fact, we tell people, you know, we may do it casually in our church settings and, you know, with people that we know are living in rebellion and we just encourage them, you need to know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's a predicate to John 8.32. It's called John 8.31. John 8.31 says, If you obey my commandments, then you are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What sets you free is first obedience, which opens the door for the truth to free you up. And so if we're going to live strategically, we have to learn to live according to the will and ways of God. We have to live as a servant, a slave, with no rights, no entitlements, and no right to make demands on God. We are only unworthy servants, 
We're unworthy in the sense that in and of ourselves we're unworthy. In Christ we're worthy, but in and of ourselves we are unworthy servants, and we've been redeemed by the gracious gift of God, and our job is simply to obey and say thank you. Is that a life skill? Hmm? Is that a life skill? Yeah. Is that a business skill? To approach your work assignment, whatever it is, as a servant in God's meta-narrative. That's living strategically. It's another angle of being strategic, isn't it? You thought I was going to talk to you about, you know, the four ways to be strategic, right? Assess where you are, get vision, set goals, be accountable. You thought I was going to talk to you about that, right? Yeah, well, there's another predicate here. You're never going to do that well until you take on the persona, the identity of a servant of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's go to the fourth lesson I want to talk about, which is a tactical alignment. See, living as a servant is a strategically the way you want to align. Now you want to tactically line up with others that are living as servants. We must know how to hear God in terms of whom to trust and whom not to trust. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18 is the text I want to appeal to you. It says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Baal? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore... Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, this is a text that, from my own experience, is largely misunderstood. The reason I say it's misunderstood is most of the time when I'm talking to someone that's not as well-trained as most of you are, and I ask him about this text, what do you think they say this applies to? marriage. And my comment is simple. I said, okay, I'm not refuting that, but is it limited? And they'd never thought about that. And I said, well, is there anything in the context that limits it to marriage? And so they start reading in the context, say, there's nothing in the context about marriage. I said, true. It doesn't mean it doesn't apply to marriage, but there's nothing in the context that limits it to marriage. So what are we talking about here? What's he talking about? Well, the context is all about Paul dealing with these people in Corinth that are attacking him. They're attacking his credibility as an apostle, trying to discredit him, and trying to diminish his ability to disciple these Corinthians. And so he is seeking to defend himself in some way. And in the process, he's trying to say to them, you need to recognize who to yoke yourselves with. You don't need to be yoked with people like this. These people don't represent Christ. And so this is where he's coming from. So he's given us a general principle in the context of his own experience. So the whole idea of being unequally yoked is being connected with people that do not share the theology that you share. If they don't share the theology that you share, then they have a different worldview because your worldview is driven by your theology. And what happens when you're unequally yoked? Conflict, inefficiencies, all kinds of disruption, an inability to produce a good value proposition. It's real simple to see. You know, if we were to take a little illustration, we could take two people up here and give them a broomstick and let them both hold on the broomstick. 
and then have them walk across the front together side by side, it'd be real easy. That represents them being equally yoked, plowing a field together. Okay? They're both walking in step, each one of them pulling their weight, everything's cool. Now, you have one of them act like they can't walk. And what happens to the other one now trying to pull the plow by himself? Well, it's not going to work well because now he's trying to pull, not only pull the plow, but he's got to pull his partner because his partner's not pulling his weight. And so it's going to be hard to keep things straight. He's going to wind up veering off to a side, maybe going in a circle. It's just going to be really difficult to plow the field. It takes a lot more energy and a lot more time. It's very inefficient. Well, that's the physical picture of spiritual unequal yoking. And we are unequal yoked anytime we have a different view of God. Now, I know there are degrees of this, and I know that you're never perfectly equally yoked because we are still people who have the vestiges of a fallen nature that we're being delivered from through the maturity process called sanctification. But we still have an ideal here. We have something to shoot for, a target. Just like every time the Rangers batters get up to hit, they're going for the fences. They got a target. They're trying to hit a home run. Well, we did have a target. Our target is equally yoked relationships. So in your business, Start out with the senior leaders. If your senior leaders are not equally yoked, that organization is going to be inherently flawed. It's going to have a hard time discerning what to do. It's going to have a hard time executing on that because you've got all this conflict and inefficiencies going on. It's like going in a circle with a plow. It doesn't plow the field well. So if we're ever going to learn how to really discern who to be yoked with, we've got to practice the principle of equal yoking. Now, you do understand that as you discern what you're called to do, what you have C4 to do, you're going to probably fulfill that most of the time in the context of an organization. Is everybody clear on that? Very few people are totally independent. Even someone like me, where I'm the only employee of my company, I am connected to clients. I'm connected to the body of Christ. I'm connected to my wife. I'm connected to advisors and friends. I'm connected in all kinds of relationships, and so are you. And most of you are going to be in organizations with more than one person. And so now you've got to plow together with those people to accomplish what it is that God's called you to do. So equal yoking is a very critical element of how you go about finding your place, what organization you're supposed to be with. Now let me just say this. There may be times... When you are assigned by God to be unequally yoked. And let me give you an example. Daniel. Daniel was born into captivity. He had no choice. And so all of his life he lived under these Babylonian emperors. And he served them because that was God's will for him. Now most of us don't have that kind of assignment. Most of us have some level of freedom to pick the people we're connected with. Pick the organization that we're part of. And so that's your responsibility, to practice a biblical principle, God's way, to discern where you're supposed to be. So keep in mind, we're talking about a maxim here. It's a principle that generally is true. You want to go for equally yoked relationships. Let me add one other thing. How many of you people, you know, manage people? You manage people? Good number of you manage people? Let me just suggest this. When it comes to managing people, there's only two relationships you can have with anybody you manage, and only two. You either disciple them or you manage their sin. That's it. 
If you disciple them, you're helping them grow into what God's called them to do, and you're producing an increasingly more equally yoked situation. If they're not submitting to discipleship, then you're managing their sin, and that's an unequally yoked situation. It's going to be very difficult for you to produce much of anything good. So when you go to hire somebody, the relevant question is not, are they a Christian? That's not the relevant question. That's typically the question I get. When I teach this, there's almost always somebody in the audience goes, bing, bing, bing. Does that mean you only hire Christians? No, that's not the question. Here's the question. When you go to hire somebody and you're committed to the C4 principle, are you God's person to help that person move into their C4? If you are, then they will be submitted to you. They will be humble. They will be teachable. Now you may have an assignment to help them move into their C4, and in the process, they just might come to Christ. You see, that's the way God works. God uses the workplace, the home, the church, the public arena. He uses it to work out the details of what it is to know Christ, to help people line up with the will and ways of God, to accomplish his purpose in and through those people. So always keep in mind, I'm looking for the relationship. Can I disciple you? If I can disciple you, maybe there's an assignment for me to help you line up with your C4. If I can't disciple you, why am I hiring you? I don't need somebody sin to manage. That is very inefficient. And it's going to prove to be ineffective. And in the end, it's just going to be frustrating for everybody. And if you want some case studies, just talk to my wife. She has a number of case studies where she's dealt with these issues. In fact, she came home one time very frustrated from this one situation. And she said to me, she says, I'm going to be your poster child for equal yoking. (laughs) She was very frustrated. And it's because she had this situation where a lady where she could not disciple her, so she was having to manage her sin. And there's not enough of your time to manage sin. When you get into sin management, it will absolutely sap you of time and energy and focus. It will deplete you. Do not think it's a a casual thing that, oh, well, I've just got one person over here that, well, I, I just can't disciple them. They're not submitted. They're not teachable. But that's all right. I can work with them. No, you can't. They will absolutely torpedo you at some point. And usually after you finally get rid of them, you'll discover how much damage they did. You won't know it at the time. You'll kid yourself about it. When you finally get it, how utterly critical this principle is, this is a way of God, and you have an option to line up with it, and if you don't line up with it, that's sin, that's disobedience, and it causes chaos in your organization. So I plead with you, pay attention to this. This is a very important principle. Over and over again, I see this being violated in organizations. But I can tell you, the two things that I consistently see in the organizations I go into, and I have been in, my goodness, I don't know how many, scores of organizations over my 25-year consulting career. I even begin to try to count them up. But consistently, I see two things. One is people out of place. They're not in their C4 and no vision to get in their C4. And secondly is unequal yoking. At the wazoo, as a result, very dysfunctional organizations. Now, the only reason that's true is because we're not following the will and the ways of God. Oh, and by the way, most of my clients profess to be Christians. That's what I'm talking about. The Christian community is not understanding these things and not walking in them. So let me summarize real quickly. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is an imperative. It's not an option. 
If you want to walk with God, if you want to please God, you've got to learn to do these things. And as you do them, he'll take care of all your needs, whatever your needs are. So the four basic business skills we've talked about are, number one is the meta narrative. This, learn to discern your role in the meta narrative. What is it you're called to do both individually and in the organization you're called to be part of? Specifically find what you have C4 to do. Strategically live as a servant of Jesus Christ in every area of life. And finally, look for equally yoked relationships in every area where you have the option to enter into those relationships. If you'll do these, you'll go a long way toward walking in the will and the ways of God. May God give you grace to do it.